This message comes from NPR sponsor Carvana. With thousands of options under $20,000, plus customizable financing terms and down payments as low as $0 down, it's easy to find a car that fits your lifestyle. Visit Carvana.com or download the app today. Terms and conditions may apply. This is The Pulse, stories about the people and places at the heart of health and science. I'm Mike and Scott. Nita Farahani was trying to get the birds to sing. It's a feature in her meditation app. But first, she had to calm down and get her stress levels under control. She was wearing a headband studded with electrodes, measuring the electrical activity inside of her brain. Algorithms, AI, are used to decode what it finds. It's like I'm happy or sad or my mind is wandering or I'm paying attention or... I'm meditating and relaxed. The headband connects to the meditation app on her phone. When I bring my stress levels down and when I reach a brain state that reflects meditation, I get an auditory feedback from my phone in the sound of chirping birds. (laughs) So the device is letting you know... You have arrived, like you yes, have truly relaxed. Yes, yes, which, I mean, ironically, oftentimes kicks me right out of a meditative state because I get excited that, you know, there are the birds, hooray, and then I have to do it all over again. But I've gotten better at that over time. So if I'm sitting there with the headband on and then suddenly I remember like, oh, God, I forgot to call my boss and I forgot to talk about this thing that's really important. It's going to pick up that now I have these different brain waves going on? Yeah, you will no longer get the chirping birds at that point. <laughs> so you'll quickly, you know, kind of lose your meditative focus. And, you know, anybody who's tried to meditate knows what that feels like. You're in the zone and, you know, you're relaxed and you're trying to be present in the moment. And then you have an intrusive thought about, uh-oh, I need to get my memo in. And suddenly you're distracted or your stress levels rise. And your brain activity reflects those shifts and those changes and can be picked up by one of these devices. So it can pick up when I'm stressed, right, when I'm having a stressful thought, but would it be able to pick up when I'm just thinking about something that's maybe not so stressful, but I'm also not meditating? Yeah, well, so, you know, these devices can pick up when you're paying attention or your mind is wandering, for example. And so... You know, it's not going to pick up your exact thoughts. Like for me, in order to really relax, I have a memory that I recall. And that memory is of my oldest daughter when she was three years old. And we're out for a hike as a family. And, you know, she's racing leaves down a waterfall with my husband. (laughs) It isn't picking up that scene right? What it's picking up is that I'm relaxed. So it's picking up a a much more general brain state, but it's not decoding what I'm thinking about. And so if instead I, you know, decided to think about relaxing on the beach and the sound of the waves crashing on the shore, and that similarly achieved that relaxed brain state, the device isn't differentiating between what scene I'm imagining or what thoughts I'm having, just that I'm relaxed. 
So far, that sounds good, right? A device that can pick up on the electrochemical signals in your brain and tell you if you are actually relaxing, really meditating or not. But as these devices become more advanced and as artificial intelligence can interpret the results in more granular detail, this brain technology could become a menace. This is a brand new frontier that we have never crossed before and suddenly we're going to do it at full speed and we need to be talking about it. We need to be doing something about it. Nita is an ethicist who studies the implications of emerging technologies and she's worried about what all of this could lead to. This technology is coming. It has arrived in many small and big ways already. It's about to become widespread. And we have a moment to get it right, to have the technology be something that could be truly empowering in the hands of individual users to make choices about their own brains and mental experiences. But if we don't make the right choices now, we're going to be lamenting having given away our very last fortress of privacy. On this episode, a conversation with Nita Farahani about her new book, The Battle for Your Brain, Defending the Right to Think Freely in the Age of Neurotechnology. Nita painted a picture of what the future of neurotechnology might bring when she spoke at the World Economic Forum in Davos earlier this year. She prepared a video that showed some of the things that are already happening and also how this technology could function in the not-too-distant future. And it starts with a person sitting at their desk and they have brain sensors embedded into their earbuds and so they're listening to music and they're focused on their work while their brain activity is being decoded in real time. Your memo is finished, your inbox is under control, and you're feeling sharper than you have in a decade. Sensing your joy, your playlist shifts to your favorite song. Sending so I'll just start by saying, that's technology that's already here. And she finishes her memo, sends it off with a mental swipe of her mind, using her brain as the controller for her computer, and that she then starts scrolling through her brain data, notices that there is some differences when she's sleeping, sends that information quickly over to her doctor and asks her doctor to take a look at it. Then her mind starts to wander. She starts to fantasize about a colleague and then gets worried that her employer who's watching her brain activity might notice her amorous feelings and that violates their office romance policy. But she gets an email later that day from her boss telling her, congratulating her for her brain metrics for the quarter and giving her a bonus. <laughs> you head home jamming to the music with your work-issued brain sensing earbuds still in. Or the boss could discover that she is not focusing and reprimand her. Nita told me that employers are already using brain tech in the workplace. I wanted to start with the employer aspect of it because, you know, on the one hand, sure, it would be nice for me to know when am I really focused and when am I not focused? Is there anything that I could tweak to have more focus at work? But I certainly don't want my employer to to be watching that process. Right. I think that would not be good. So. Right. 
are how is that happening already and where? So there's a company that I talk about in in the book, which is called SmartCap, and they've been selling a technology to companies worldwide already that allows employers to track the fatigue levels of employees like commercial truck drivers or miners or um, you know a, a pilot. And they're collecting very little data uh, right now from employees. They overwrite what's called the raw brainwave data that they're collecting on the device itself. And the only thing that they give to employers is a score, one to five, about whether a person is tired or wide awake. Um, and that's being used for kind of safety monitoring of both society, but also those employees. Other companies are selling technology to enterprises and they're offering to them the possibility of tracking attention levels. And that could be given to employees for them to use themselves to improve their focus or to figure out how to, you know, kind of get into the zone. But employers in other countries are already using it. After that talk I gave at Davos presenting this, a CEO of a company came up to me and said, hey, we're, we're using that already. We've already trialed it out on a thousand of our employees and we're planning on selling this as a product to our customers um, for skilling and for you know being able to figure out policies like where do employees work best from home or in the office and are they bored or engaged? And in China, it's happening where factory workers and you know train conductors are required to have their brain activity monitored throughout the workday, and you know there are even reports of them being sent home if their brain metrics don't meet the kind of standards that have been set. Are these devices able to account for individual differences between people and what their brain activity looks like at any given time? Are they sophisticated enough? Yeah, that's a great question. So everybody's brain is a little bit different. Like the, if you're doing a math problem in your head and I'm doing a math problem, the same one in my head, our brain activity will look a little bit different. But the parts of our brain that we're engaging will be the same. And these devices can pick up both the similarities, but they're also trained with baseline training on each person's brain activity. So when you put on one of the devices, you go through a kind of baseline training where um, you might do something like look at a box on a screen and you practice pushing the box with your mind forward and left and right. And that's a calibration of the device to your differences in your brain activity which then allow for, because of that calibration, the ability for an employer to look across different brains to pick up the same kinds of metrics. But we don't know about things like, you know, there are more fundamental differences like that, like differences in, you know, neuroatypicality and, you know, just differences in conditions. And, and they haven't been used at scale to really know the answers to those questions yet. Yeah. And Am I able to outsmart this device? You know, I mean, if I'm thinking about a lie detector test, you know, and some people, I mean, they didn't really work anyway, but then also <laughs> sometimes people learned how to control those or how mm -hmm. to control themselves not to have a response. So do I have a chance against this device to fool it somehow? Well, let me give you the happy and the sad answer to that. <laughs> <laughs> The happy answer is, you know, if you're um, in a, a big machine like a functional magnetic resonance imaging machine and somebody's asking you a series of questions or showing you images to try to interrogate your brain, yeah, you can employ countermeasures. 
you can think about a giant pink elephant the entire time or, you know, focus on um, something in your field of view that distracts you from whatever they're trying to show you to probe your brain. That's the happy answer. The more challenging answer is the future that's coming is not a future where, you know, you're, you're hauled into a police station and somebody puts a headset on you and interrogates your brain. The future is one where, you know, the brain sensors sort of disappear from you. They're, they're part of the technology you're already using. They're embedded in your watch. They're embedded in your earbuds or in your headphones. They're the way you're interacting with the rest of your technology. And, you know, you're taking your conference call and you don't even notice that your brain activity is being monitored at the same time. And images could show up on your screen that you don't even notice, but that could be probing your brain for information or for recognition. So are you suggesting that if we don't put our foot down collectively, this is what's going to happen? I think so. I mean, I think unless we decide that before this technology is widespread, is, you know, our sensors that are part of our everyday technology, the same rules that have applied or lack of rules that have applied to the collection of all of the rest of our data and the manipulation of our brains and mental experiences, it'll be like that on steroids with these, which is not to say that I think the right answer is to put our foot down and ban the technology. If you and I can have direct access to our own brain health and well-being and brain activity and nobody else has access to it, that can be really empowering and important and valuable. The danger comes when other people are using it to surveil our brains or to change our brains. And so unless we put our foot down against that, then we're going to end up, I think, in a pretty dystopian future. And there seems to be a big lag in terms of the outrage that follows, mm -hmm. you know, so people sort of adopt a new technology. We saw this with social media where, you know, it was great. Okay, here we are. We can all connect, you know. And then like 10 years later, maybe people started to realize, oh, wow, all this information is being collected about me. All this data is being used. There is nothing that I can hide unless I try really hard. So are you worried that it will be a little bit like this? Like by the time we all understand what is happening, it will be too late? I am so worried that I wrote an entire book about it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I like this book is meant to be a wake-up call and a call to action because that's exactly what I worry about. You know, we, we normalize technology through play and entertainment and thinking what we're doing is just interacting with our friends and family. And then suddenly... You know, we've given away the keys to every intimate and personal detail about ourselves and eventually our mental privacy. And so that's exactly what I think will happen. And there, you know, I give example after example of this in the book where it already is, and people are already unwittingly giving up so much of their mental privacy and their brain data. And, you know, I want people to be aware of what's happening to actually take notice and realize this is a brand new frontier that we have never crossed before and suddenly we're going to do it at full speed and we need to be talking about it. We need to be doing something about it. Who are some of the big companies that are investing in this and what kind of stuff are they doing? 
they're the biggest names on the block, right? So they're Meta, who um, is investing in what's called EMG, electromyography technology. This picks up brain signals as they go from your brain down your arm to your wrist and signal your intention to move, to navigate through space, to type on virtual keyboards. Or Apple, who's acquired patents to embed EEJ sensors into augmented reality glasses or into even one day AirPods. Or uh, Microsoft, who is investing in, in embedding brain sensors into virtual reality headsets. And Google, who has you know, massive investment into neurotechnology and its development. So it's it's every major company you have heard of. And what kind of stuff are they making? Like, give me an example of what I could be using in 10 years or in one year. <laughs> the idea, I think, in the future is that your brain becomes the way you interface with other technology. So, you know, you're instead of using a keyboard or a mouse you think about typing and the brain sensors pick up your intention to type or to swipe or to move or you're playing a video game and instead of you know holding a controller, you concentrate on moving a piece or um, shooting a weapon or walking through a virtual space. You're in virtual reality and instead of you know, also having handheld devices that you use to point and to click, you just naturally point and click and think about moving and your brain activity is used as the way to power that. But could these sensors distinguish between like stupid stuff that might be popping into my brain? You know, I might be looking at a cup and think, what if I knock this cup over just for the heck of it? You know, right. so but I don't want to actually knock the cup over. So how would it even know which thoughts of mine to act on? It's a good question, and this is you know kind of an interesting thing that neuroscientists are really trying to sort between, which is intention to communicate and how that's represented in the brain versus unintentional inward or inner monologue. And right now, the technology is much better at picking up your intention to communicate, so your intention to move, your intention to form words and to share them, rather than just the kind of private musings that you have that you don't intend to communicate. Does that mean that you know the technology will perfectly be able to differentiate between the two and that we have a perfect understanding of those distinctions in the brain? The answer is no. And there's a lot of things that can be picked up, like your biases or your automatic reactions. So if you're presented with images of different politicians, for example, or messages that are that align with different political parties, you don't intend to share with somebody what your political biases or preferences are, but that can be detected by your automatic reaction to those. So it's like a kind of long answer, which is to say we don't have perfect knowledge about this right now, but that's some of how I think neuroscientists are thinking about it. So in the future, if I'm wearing a headset that is basically picking up directly from my brain what I want to do next, you know, moving the cursor or playing a game, it could simultaneously gather, I guess, all of this data from me as long as I have the thing on. That's true. Uh-huh. And this is going to be the big, I guess, payoff for companies. <laughs> 
I think that even the immediate is a big payoff for them, to be honest, right? Uh-huh. I mean, I think um, our imaginations may be the only limitation on what eventually can be decoded from the brain. And EEG, these sensors are probably not going to be the last iteration of the technology. There's more powerful ways to peer more deeply into the brain that are being miniaturized already. Um, but I think already just being able to know, for example, how your brain reacts to a product is better information for many companies than what you personally say your preferences and desires are. So if you're trying to figure out marketing and showing people commercials and say, which one of these do you like better? People's self-reports don't seem to align as well with their purchasing behavior and actions and decisions as how their brain reacts to those. And so for companies already to be able to gather brain-based reactions to your social media feed or advertisements and then use that to target products to you. As Mark Zuckerberg has described it, the brain is the holy grail for for companies. And I think really it's the holy grail of commodification of data for them. Wow. So I just thought about, you know, when when people first started noticing, like, if you Googled a specific kind of shoes, and then later on, you went on Facebook, and then all of a sudden, you got an ad for those shoes. Like, we haven't seen nothing yet. I think that's exactly right. I mean, I think, you know, when you layer on top the rapid advances in AI, like generative AI, and how powerful that can be when connected to brain activity, both to be able to decode what's happening in the brain, but to change what's happening there too, and more precisely manipulate and change what people are thinking. I don't think we've seen anything yet. I think we are at the you know, kind of forefront, the early days of a revolution in technology that really could transform our experience of being human. And people aren't noticing. (laughs) They don't even realize it's happening. Yeah. We're talking about brain technology with Nida Farahani. She is a professor of law and philosophy at Duke Law School. Her new book is called The Battle for Your Brain. Coming up, a look at the positive health impacts of brain technology and how it's helping people improve their focus and mood. All of a sudden, I had the motivation. I got up and I demoed my whole bathroom and started that project. So it was definitely one of those situations where I was like, wow, I feel different after the first time trying this. That's next on The Pulse. Moms know the ups and downs of life. It's what makes them great subjects for books. This is one of the things that fiction can do, right? It can give us a window into the battles that each person is waging or facing, but it doesn't mean that we condone her actions. This week on NPR's Book of the Day podcast, we are discussing books centering mothers. So call your mom, then tune into the Book of the Day podcast from NPR. 
There are a lot of issues on voters' minds right now. Six big ones could help decide the election. Guns, reproductive rights, immigration, the economy, health care, and the wars overseas. On the Consider This podcast from NPR, we will unpack the debates on these issues and what's at stake. You can listen to NPR's Consider This wherever you get your podcasts. Every weekday, NPR's best political reporters come to you on the NPR Politics Podcast to explain the big news coming out of Washington, the campaign trail, and beyond. We don't just want to tell you what happened, we tell you why it matters. Join the NPR Politics Podcast every single afternoon to understand the world through political eyes. You care about what's happening in the world. Let State of the World from NPR keep you informed. Each day, we transport you to a different point on the globe and introduce you to the people living world events. We don't just tell you world news, we take you there. And you can make this journey while you're doing the dishes or driving your car. State of the World podcast from NPR. Vital international stories every day. Major funding for The Pulse is provided by a leadership gift from the Sutherland Fund. The Sutherlands support WHYY and its commitment to the production of programs that improve our quality of life. You care about what's happening in the world. Let State of the World from NPR keep you informed. Each day we transport you to a different point on the globe and introduce you to the people living world events. We don't just tell you world news, we take you there. And you can make this journey while you're doing the dishes or driving your car. State of the World podcast from NPR. Vital international stories every day. This is The Pulse. I'm Mike and Scott. We're talking about brain technology. So far, we've heard about devices that are able to pick up and interpret electrochemical signals in the brain, devices that can tell us if we're focused, if we're stressed or relaxed. But this technology can also be used in a different way to stimulate the brain, to get neurons to fire in specific ways. It's been used to improve mental health or to treat depression and anxiety. For things like mood difficulties, concentration, enhancing sleep. Um, there are also devices that have been marketed for stimulating the motor parts of the brain in order to try and help athletes who are training. This is Roy Hamilton. He's a neurologist and a researcher at the University of Pennsylvania who has been studying brain stimulation for decades. Our brains function via electrochemical properties, right? And so we can target stimulation that is electrical nature and cause brain areas to fire, right? And when that happens, that alters the way that we perceive, behave, and uh, perform mental operations depending on where and how we apply that stimulation. Sometimes the brain stimulation happens deep inside of the brain after stimulators are implanted during a surgery. Or patients can go to a doctor's office to receive transcranial magnetic stimulation. It's a non-invasive procedure that uses magnetic fields. But increasingly, brain stimulation can be done at home with small devices. Some look like caps or hats, others more like headbands or goggles. A while back, Liz Tung spoke with somebody who uses one of these devices. This is how Dave describes the device that he says changed his life for the better. It's a, about the size of a cell phone or smaller, um, probably more like the size of one of the older flip phones that we used to have. feels like something you could make if you were in the parking lot of a radio shack. Dave is a school psychologist. 
He has that I only use his first name to protect his privacy. And he's dealt with anxiety and depression for most of his life. It hit an especially rough patch last summer when one of his therapist buddies recommended something novel, cranial electrotherapy stimulation, delivered by a little gadget that he could use right in his home. Dave was skeptical, but he was also getting desperate. I, I didn't believe him. I thought it was going to be a bunch of snake oil. And so I said, well, you know what? I, at, at least out of my respect for him, I'll try something. So Dave went looking online and found a similar device on eBay. It was called the AlphaStim and marketed as a, quote, FDA-cleared prescription medical device that offers relief from anxiety, insomnia, depression, and pain. So Dave ordered the device. A little while later, it showed up at his house. It had two parts, a little box that resembled a digital clock and a long, skinny cord, similar to cheap headphones. Except instead of two earbuds, it had two small clips, through which Dave discovered the device would deliver a microcurrent of electricity directly into his brain. You clip it on your ears uh, with a little bit of conducting solution, and it starts to send very minor, teeny tiny shocks through your earlobes. And then you turn it up. So it starts off, I think, at 100 microamps, and you kind of just turn it up until a point where you feel uncomfortable. It feels like being seasick, a little bit nauseous. And then you turn it back down just under that threshold. The sensation was kind of disconcerting. But then something amazing happened. All of a sudden, I had the motivation. I got up and I demoed my whole bathroom and started that project. So it was definitely one of those situations where I was like, wow, I feel different after the first time trying this. He says it's not like he felt euphoric or anything. It just made him feel like less of a raw nerve all the time, which meant he no longer had so much resistance to getting things done. And in general, just felt more resilient. I found that it's kind of like the, the threshold between feeling normal and feeling anxious was not as sensitive. So, so those, you know, as you walk around in life and you're feeling vulnerable and someone says something or something and it just kind of sends you off and you get that rush of anxiety, uh, that just didn't happen as often. That was from a story Liz Tung reported back in 2020. So the brain operates via electrical properties, and that means devices like the one Dave uses can drive activity using stimulation. But it also means that we can record from it. We can record that activity. We can, we can listen to the brain. That's researcher Roy Hamilton again. He says as neurotechnology continues to evolve, these devices are getting more and more sophisticated. We're getting to the point in our technologies where we can do both sometimes simultaneously and often stimulate in ways that are directly related to what we're finding out about the brain in real time, you know, what we're learning from the data that's coming from the brain. So yes, these two things are different, but they are intimately related to each other and, and sort of form a, a loop, if you will. Yeah. So in an ideal world, I guess, we could learn about what is happening in somebody's brain and then potentially stimulate their brain to help them out. Yes, and we already have clinical technologies that can, for instance, uh, record brain activity, 
since, I'll take one example, since when an individual may be about to have a seizure, and then by virtue of the fact that, you know, that has a, a recognizable signature of brain activity, then stimulate the brain in such a way that it aborts that from happening, right? That technology already exists. And applying it to behavioral applications, and this is something that we're uh, starting to see, increasing investigations of individuals, researchers, who are recording from the brain and then in real time uh, or close to real time, based on the signals that they are getting from the brain, trying to stimulate the brain in order to, to alter behavior or, or at least alter the signals in the brain that are associated with the behaviors that we would, would like to change or the behaviors that we'd like to optimize. That's neurologist Roy Hamilton. He directs the Penn Center for Brain Science, Translation, Innovation, and Modulation in Philadelphia. So there is a lot of promise with neurotechnology, and that's something ethicist Nita Farahani sees as well, not just in terms of changing how people feel, but in terms of things we could learn and understand about ourselves. This technology could be transformational, and just, you know, as a way to think about that, most people can tell you a lot about their own body and health. Many people can tell you what their heart rate is or blood pressure is, their resting temperature, their number of steps that they've taken, even you know their PSA levels and cholesterol levels, but they can tell you virtually nothing about the inner working of their own brain. And that's remarkable if you think about it. It's the organ we most identify with our sense of health. It's the most important thing for most people is to preserve their brain health, and we know almost nothing at all about it. And brain sensors could change that. They could give us access to our own brain activity. They could help us start to quantify and understand what brain health actually means and to track it over time and you know, to know how different environments affect your mood and your physical and mental well-being. They can give you insights you know, from everything to the earliest stages of glioblastoma, which for early diagnosis is critical to survival, to mm -hmm. neurodegenerative diseases, to depression, you know, you name it, it's happening in the brain and the ability to decode it and have access to it could fundamentally change and improve our overall well-being. So I, I think the promise is extraordinary if we have self-determination over our brains and mental experiences and if we are the ones who are accessing and using that information for our own good. Yeah, and on a more mundane level, I mean, I have days when I feel totally focused and I can get so many things done. And then there are other days where I feel like, blah, I don't even know. <laughs> I don't even know if I have a brain anymore. You know, so just to be able to figure out what is happening and maybe then figure out why would be amazing. Right. I, I mean, absolutely. And that's the way in, in which some of the technology is already being used by people, right? So, a lot of people work from home instead of working from the office these days, and many of us think we work better from home, but you know, wouldn't it be good to have objective evidence that helps you understand, do you really focus and get into the zone better if you're at home versus in the office or if you're sitting in a comfy armchair versus a desk chair or 
you know, if it's morning or night, how do different foods and drinks affect, you know, your mood and your well-being and your focus? All of these things are insights that we can learn about ourselves that we only have our subjective perspective of those things right now. Objective data could really change how we live our lives. That's Nita Farahani. She's a professor of law and philosophy at Duke Law School in Durham, North Carolina. Her new book is called The Battle for Your Brain, Defending the Right to Think Freely in the Age of Neurotechnology. Coming up, what to look out for if you want to use brain tech. This is difference. Whether you've given up on every other aspect of privacy, nobody has claimed yet and breached your mental vault. That's next on The Pulse. There's a lot to stay on top of on any given day. You might have to break things down into smaller pieces in order to keep up. That's why we're introducing the new Consider This newsletter from NPR. Every weekday, we sift through all the day's news and bring you one big story in an easily skimmable format. So you become a mini expert on a major topic each day. Sign up for free at npr.org slash consider this newsletter. On the TED Radio Hour... In the middle school cafeteria, Ty Tashiro always sat with his equally nerdy buddies. The socially awkward kids who were the furthest thing from cool. And he often wondered, Why am I so socially awkward and what am I going to do about that? Now Ty is a psychologist and expert on awkwardness. And he has some answers. That's on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Numbers that explain the economy. We love them at The Indicator from Planet Money. And on Fridays, we discuss indicators in the news, like job numbers, spending, the cost of food, sometimes all three. So my indicator is about why you might need to bring home more bacon to afford your eggs. I'll be here all week. Wrap up your week and listen to The Indicator podcast from NPR. What does it sound like to record an album inside a jail? On the documentary podcast, Track Change, you'll hear four men make music inside Richmond City Jail and hear how they're trying to break free from a cycle of addiction and incarceration. Been so long since I've been free. Listen to Track Change from Narratively and VPM, part of the NPR Network. The NPR app cuts through the noise, bringing you local, national, and global coverage. No paywalls, no profits, no nonsense. Download it in your app store today. Feel like the world is on fire? Shortwave is your antidote. We find joy and beauty in the science of the planet we live on. How people are taking action in the face of climate change. The many weird and wonderful ways animals have adapted to a changing world in the past and present. And how technology is pushing us forward. Listen now to the Shortwave podcast from NPR. This is The Pulse. I'm Mike and Scott. We're talking about neurotechnology with Nida Farahani. She's an ethicist at Duke Law School and focuses on the impact of emerging technology. Her new book is called The Battle for Your Brain. Neurotechnology refers to devices that can either stimulate your brain to change mood, focus, or cognitive performance, or that can pick up electrical signals in your brain to interpret what 
what is happening on the inside. And that's why Nita says we have to be very concerned about our privacy when it comes to this rapidly growing field. If I am using any one of the devices that are available right now, what do I have to look for in terms of who has access to this data? You know, I have downloaded so many different apps that track some aspect of myself, and I'm always clicking agree, agree, agree in terms of whatever their conditions are. Right. But I haven't been good about checking what actually I'm agreeing to. So what well, do first we of all, you have to change that. Yes. <laughs> so, <laughs> but at least when it comes to this category, it's incredibly important that you do. So there are a few companies who have been very clear and have said from the outset, your brain data is your data. We're not going to store it in the cloud. We're never going to commodify it. We're never going to use it. And I think the more the promise is to keep it directly on your device and never even have access to it, the better and safer off you are. And so while people generally ignore and gloss over privacy policies, this aspect of what are they collecting, where is it being stored, and who else gets access to it is so critically important. Part of the reason I say you want to favor the companies that keep brain data on device rather than in the cloud or you know, say we promise not to use it is a lot of those companies are getting kind of gobbled up by bigger companies. Mm-hmm. And you know, there's no guarantee that those same promises will hold true when a major tech titan purchases a specialty neurotech company that has made promises to you. So ones that truly secure to you your brain data and ensure that it isn't being collected, commodified, and used are the best ones to choose. Some of this technology is already making its way into law enforcement around the world. They're using EEG, electroencephalography, headsets. They're bringing criminal suspects into their offices, and then they're interrogating them while looking at their brain-based response to images or words or pictures from a crime scene. There's a company out of the U.S. called Brainwave Sciences that has been selling this technology worldwide, and Law enforcement from India to the UAE are are using it already in a number of criminal cases and have obtained criminal convictions as a result and criminal confessions as a result. But these, these interrogation techniques are not used in the U.S. yet, right? So they have happened in the U.S., but not by compelling a defendant to do so. So there are a few cases where criminal defendants themselves have sought to have the kind of brain interrogation data introduced to prove their alibi um, or to prove that they're telling the truth. There's one case where the police asked a criminal suspect if he was willing to submit to this brain-based interrogation. They'd been trying for a long time to associate him with the crime and and they didn't have any you know kind of hard evidence to do so. He voluntarily submitted to the brain interrogation and then you know, purportedly that showed that he had recognition of of crime scene details that he shouldn't have and couldn't have unless he'd been associated with it. And after they presented him with that information, he confessed to the crime. You mentioned the word dystopian future earlier. And I mean, I don't want to scare people, but I do want to know what you, what's kind of the worst case scenario that, that you see when you think about all of this? 
Oh, gosh. (laughs) The worst case scenario is our brains are monitored by governments, that there's a chilling of basic freedom of thought, that the equivalent of political oaths that are taken by presenting information, um, you know, about our, you know, messaging from different political candidates and, you know, the president and seeing whether or not we agree to it or, you know, express disgust or unwillingness to cooperate. And and I, I put that out there not just to say like, oh, imagine how terrible would this be, but that seeds of that kind of misuse have already been reported out of China where supposedly the very workers who are being compelled to wear this technology or students in classrooms being compelled to wear it, that they're similarly being presented with you know, messaging from the PRC and then seeing how their brain reacts to it. Now, what's being done with that information? I don't know, but I worry about the chilling of our very ability to think freely, to, you know, be able to figure out who we are, but also to be able to resist tyranny and, you know, misuse and abuses by others. At what point does legislation come into play here? It it seems like there's always a bit of a game of catch up when it comes to this kind of technology where the laws and rules are put into place kind of after the cat is already out of the bag. I agree. And um, I think the time to act is is now. And what I've proposed in the book is a right to cognitive liberty, which is a international human right to self-determination over our brains and mental experiences. And I think this is achievable because what's made up of cognitive liberty, the kind of rights that it includes, are right to mental privacy, freedom of thought, and self-determination. And there are aspects of all three of those rights that already exist in human rights law. Privacy is already an international human right, so is freedom of thought, and so is self-determination. But we have to update our understanding of those rights in order to give us a right to cognitive liberty in the digital age. And I propose this as a way forward, not just to navigate neurotechnology, but how we update liberty in the digital age trying to stay ahead of AI and metaverse and neurotech and all of these different technologies by, you know, having different rules and regulations that apply to each is is like an extended game of whack-a-mole. Instead, I think we say like, look, what are the set of rights we need in the digital age over our brains and mental experiences? And then apply that broadly across all of these different technologies. So, That's, I think, the role for legislation is recognizing an international human right and then applying that and enforcing it worldwide. And what is our individual role here? How do we ensure that we're not giving away access to our brains, maybe even unknowingly? So I think first, before people put on brain sensors, they should be figuring out not only what the privacy policy is, but what the context is. Mm -hmm. A lot of people's initial exposure to neurotechnology isn't by buying a headset for themselves. It's by going to an art museum and being offered the opportunity to wear one while viewing art or going to a perfume counter and being offered the opportunity to wear one to design your custom scent. It's in context that you wouldn't expect it. And that novelty of the context 
tends to lead us to be blind to the risks that we're taking on. And so as you encounter neurotechnology in your everyday life, the answer is to be wary and cautious and ask, what's being collected? What is this? What are you analyzing? Who's going to have access to the data? And if they don't have good answers to that, then don't do it. (laughs) You know, just say no. In speaking with people who are invested in making this kind of technology, creating the next generation of devices, what do they think about the risks? Or do they see them as clearly as you do? They do. I, you know, I think I've been heartened by the neurotech companies, um, especially the implanted neurotech companies that you know we haven't been talking about but are far ahead of the game. They are really thinking hard about what the implications of the technology are for society. And they're designing it because they want to enable people who have suffered from paralysis and who no longer have the ability to communicate to have a way to do so. And they're they're mindful of what the broader ethical implications are and they're participating and pushing forward those conversations. The consumer neurotech companies, the leading ones, all have you know, reached out to me and others in the space to get guidance on the ethical pathway forward. So I'm I'm encouraged that it is part of the conversation. I worry that once it's, you know, kind of the big tech players who have already built their business models on commodifying data, that those same conversations may not translate as well, which is why I think we can't just leave it up to corporations and their kind of best efforts to ensure that we've safeguarded people against the downside risks. Do you think some of us have just become so, I don't know, worn out by constantly being mined for everything we have to to offer? I mean, I remember the first time I learned that Facebook had conducted some kind of experiment mm-hmm. on people's yes. mental well-being and they the had... Emotional ch- contagion yeah. experiments, yes. <laughs> and and I, I just remember thinking like, oh my God, that is outrageous. And I was really just so mad. And now I would probably just be like, eh, you know. (laughs) Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, people become normalized, even really unfortunate, dystopian, bad uh, applications of technology in their lives. And the more you're exposed to it, the more we either feel defeated and unable to change it or accustomed to it so that it almost becomes invisible to us. I do worry that given the repeat exposure we've had to commodification of our data and misuse of data and even experiments on our mental well-being that, you know, people have resigned so much of their privacy. That's part of why I wrote this book too, though, was to help people see this is different. Whether you've given up on every other aspect of privacy, nobody has claimed yet, you know, and and breached your mental vault. Even if you think you have nothing to hide and every other aspect of your privacy that's being taken from you, we all have an inner monologue and inner thoughts that we want to keep private from other people, whether that's the simple, like, you know, yes, honey, that outfit looks great on you to, um, you know, telling your friend that you love the mustard yellow color they chose for their new couch, right? I mean, these are, <laughs> these are part of how we interact with one another. And we have a right to keep 
uh, a space for mental reprieve, a place to figure out who we are and what we want and what we want to share and what we don't want to share. And so I think there is a collective exhaustion, but we have to somehow dig deeply to recognize this is it. This is our last bastion of privacy. How can parents and educators talk about this with kids? Because, I mean, they are going to be experiencing the next level of this in a big way. And a lot of them are already using technology a lot more than I did when I was a kid. So how do we bring up these topics? And when? I think sooner rather than later. You know, mm-hmm. a lot of children are already starting to experiment, for example, with virtual reality. Yeah. And a big part of the the kind of growing field of neurotechnology is to embed, you know, so-called neural interface, brain sensors, whether it's in watches that help you uh, navigate augmented reality or sensors that pick up your brain activity and your intentions move in virtual reality. And you know, children aren't going to be thinking about, you know, what does it mean to have my eyes tracked, my hands mapped, and my brain activity being decoded by these headsets. What they're thinking is like, oh, what a fun immersive game, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and, you know, we have to be careful not to normalize the technology on them um, because they're not thinking about it. So I think it's not too early ever if you're allowing your child to interact with this technology and it is picking up information about them, teaching them their digital lives and their digital traces and what's being picked up and what isn't from the youngest age I think is critical. I think in the same way that we need to be educating children, I think parents have to be thinking mindfully about what information they're sharing about their kids. And if parents decide like, oh, wouldn't this be great to help my child improve their focus by giving them a headset to play video games with their brains, they should be sure that the data that's being collected is is being kept on device and isn't being shared and tracked and associated with their child's profile over time. I can already see like <laughs> the, this will help your baby sleep better. Right, <laughs> right. I mean, the same way that like play Mozart for your baby. It's like, uh-huh. you know, put the put the neural headset on from your child. You know, your, your child hasn't learned to talk yet. That's okay. Decode their brain activity and figure out what they really want, right? <laughs> I know what they want. They want my iPhone. <laughs> yes, they do. From the earliest age, they want your iPhone. But... <laughs> <sighs> Nita Farahani is the author of The Battle for Your Brain, Defending the Right to Think Freely in the Age of Neurotechnology. That's our show for this week. The Pulse is a production of WHYY in Philadelphia. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Our health and science reporters are Alan Yu, Liz Tung, and Grant Hill. Marcus Biddle is our Health Equity Fellow. Alan Hinnich is our intern. Charlie Kyer is our engineer. And this week we had engineering assistance from Diana Martinez. Our producers are Nicole Curry and Lindsay Lazarski. I'm Mike and Scott. Thank you for listening. Don't listen to my brain. <laughs> Major funding for The Pulse is provided by a leadership gift from the Sutherland family. The Sutherlands support WHYY and its commitment to the production of programs that improve our quality of life. 
The Commonwealth Fund supports the pulse and reporting on health equity. The Commonwealth Fund, affordable, quality health care for everyone. Behavioral health reporting on the pulse is supported by the Thomas Scattergood Behavioral Health Foundation, an organization that is committed to thinking, doing, and supporting innovative approaches in integrated health care. WHYY's health and science reporting is supported by a generous grant from Public Health Management Corporation's Public Health Fund. PHMC gladly supports WHYY and its commitment to the production of services that improve our quality of life. With more and more information coming at you all day every day, it can be hard to know where to focus. The new Consider This newsletter from NPR can be that focus. Every weekday afternoon, we take one of the day's biggest stories and break it down in a simple, skimmable format so you can get a better grasp of one important topic and what it means for you in a couple of minutes. Sign up for free at npr.org slash consider this newsletter. Here at Planet Money, we bring complex economic ideas down to earth. We find weird, fun, interesting stories that explain the way money shapes our lives. Inflation, recessions, the price of gas, we've got you. Listen now to the Planet Money podcast from NPR. From the campaigns to the conventions, from now through Election Day and beyond, the NPR Politics podcast has you covered. As Joe Biden and Donald Trump square off again, we bring you the latest news from the trail and dive deep into each candidate's goals for a second term. Listen to the NPR Politics podcast every weekday.